This morning I invite you to draw your sword and turn to Romans chapter 15. I want to read in your hearing verses 23 to 33. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 15, I'll begin at verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. From Macedonia and Achaia, we're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed the task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I will come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. At first read, this passage might sound practical, but not really pragmatic. It might sound monotonous, but not all that meaningful. It just might strike you as instructive, but not all that interesting. It just appears that the apostle is coming to the end of the letter and merely giving his itinerary. But this morning I want to submit to you that in these ten verses we find four effects of the gospel that influence our everyday lives. The first effect or principle of the gospel is simply this, that the gospel promotes dreams and divine detours. In verse 19 of Romans chapter 15, the apostle has already said, I have come full circle, for I have come from Jerusalem, and I have traveled around and fully proclaimed the gospel. Now, for Paul to say that he had come all the way around, for him to say he had fully proclaimed the gospel, does not mean that he had visited every town and every village, does not mean that he had spoken to every man, woman, boy, and girl, and shared the good news of the gospel. But what it does mean is that he has executed the divine strategy, for he took the gospel into densely populated areas, spoke to individuals about Christ and about their need for salvation. He planted strategic churches along the way, built up disciples in the hopes that disciples would 
duplicate disciples exponentially. And that the culture would be one for Christ, one person at a time. In that entire region, he had gone from populated city to populated city. He had gone from metropolis to metropolis. He had meticulously gone through the entire area, planting strong, significant churches for the Lord Jesus Christ. He now tells the Romans, I have an ambition to go to Spain. Now, why does Paul want to go to Spain? It's not for a well-deserved vacation after 10 years of rigorous missionary work. No, he wants to go to Spain to present the gospel to an unreached people group. He has a desire to make it all the way to Spain. I'm sure that Spain is beautiful this time of year. But in the ancient world, it was an aggressive plan to go from where Paul currently was in Corinth all the way westward to Spain. In these days, travel was very expensive very dangerous, and quite tedious. And the apostle lays out his plan. If you had the Bible in one hand and an ancient map in the other, you would quickly determine that the apostle has just written that he wants to make a 4,000-mile circuit for the gospel. Most people believe that the apostle was in Corinth when he wrote the Roman correspondence. He tells the church at Rome, I want to leave here at Corinth and travel eastward to Jerusalem. He wants to travel 4,000 miles. The first leg would have been approximately 800 miles from Corinth to Jerusalem, and then 2,500 miles from Jerusalem to Rome, and then an additional 700 miles from the capital city of Rome to the region of Spain. 4,000 miles. And once again, that may not sound like a big deal to you. Some of you before COVID-19 traveled 4,000 miles in a month for your job. I realize that it's nothing for us to hop in a car, hop on a plane, and go from point A to point B. But in the first century, this was an aggressive circuit. It was a great plan, a big dream for him to go to Spain. Now, once again, if you had the Bible in one hand and an ancient map in the other, you would quickly come to this conclusion. Why in the world is Paul going from Corinth eastward to Jerusalem and then only to turn around and travel westward to Rome and then further west to Spain? You would look at your map and you would say, this is a 1,500-mile detour. Why is he going out of his way to go to Jerusalem? I mean, really, it makes no geographical sense What would make much more sense would be to leave Corinth, go to Rome, and from Rome, then go to Spain. But because he incorporates Jerusalem, which is way over uh, to the east, it's a 1,500-mile detour. Now, why does Paul do this? And the answer is because he had been collecting a love offering from the churches to give to the saints that were struggling in Jerusalem. And Paul says that I have a big dream. My gospel dream is to get to Spain. But my dreams are always subjected to God, who is my navigation system. He is my ways app. And so I submit all of my plans, all of my agenda to the Lord. And the Lord has told me that I need to personally deliver this fruit. In our passage, fruit really means loot. 
He wants to deliver the loot to the saints in Jerusalem. He wants to give them personally this love offering. It had been collected by the saints uh, there in Macedonia and Achaia, for they had given freely and generously. And Paul says, this would be good for me to personally deliver this money, this love offering, to the saints that are struggling in Jerusalem. And once I successfully do that, then I will make my way and fulfill my grand gospel plan. And I will make my way to Spain. I'll stop off in Rome, and you can refresh me. That word refresh means I need you to put a roof over my head. I need you to put some food in my belly. I need you to put some coins in my wallet because you need to refresh me because by the time I make it to Rome, I won't have another dollar to my name. And so I need you to help a brother out. And so you're going to refresh me as I refresh you. We will mutually edify one another and then I'll move along and I will go to Spain and I'll evangelize. Now, the reality is that we have read in the book of Acts, that Paul, he went to Jerusalem. But when he took the love offering, he was arrested. He was in prison for a couple of years. He eventually made his way to Rome, just not the way he thought he was going to get to Rome. He got, in, he got himself to Rome after a storm, a shipwreck, and being snake bitten. He was under house arrest in the capital city, Rome. And there, uh, he was there waiting for his day in court for he appealed as a Roman citizen. We don't know if he really ever appeared to Caesar. We don't know if he ever successfully got out of the house arrest. And we do not know if he ever made it to Spain. But the gospel, the gospel promotes dreams and divine detours. It's at this point that I have to ask the question, what is your big gospel dream? What do you want God to do in and through you for the sake of the gospel? What is your dream? What is your desire? What is the place where you want to go and share the good news of Jesus? How do you want God to use you? When you and I come from a crisis like COVID-19, one of the casualties is that far too many times people stop dreaming. They just want to eke out existence. And maybe you know what that felt like over the last 12 months. For you just to go from paycheck to paycheck. For you just to go from day to day, week to week, month to month. That you just turned the calendar every month and said, thank you Jesus that we've now made another month. Now it's no longer March, now it's April. Now it's no longer April, but it's May. And you made your way all the way through 2020. And you flipped the calendar to 2021. And you said, God, just help me make it. Because sometimes in the midst of a crisis, you just stop dreaming dreams. And this morning when you and I come to this passage, it implores the church to dream again. It, in, it invites us to enter into God's work and for us to ask the question, how big is your gospel dream? And I wonder, beloved, what dream do you have to fulfill for the sake of the gospel? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? How do you want God to use you? Is there anybody with the dream that God would use them to reach their high school for Christ? Is there anybody with the dream that there will be a day soon and very soon when this sanctuary will be filled to capacity three or four times every single Sunday when people come in to hear the good news of the gospel and to worship the Lord. Is there anybody with a dream who says, God, help me to be part of something where this year we 
baptized 250 people for the sake of Christ? Is there anybody with a dream that says, Lord, I want us to be able to send out 100 missionary teams to 50 states and 50 countries next year? God, I want you to send me to California. I want you to send me to the Congo. I want you to send me to China. I want you to send me someplace where I can have an influence for the kingdom of Christ. Is there anybody who has a dream to recapture this culture for the sake of Christ? Is there anybody who says, God, I just want you to do a mighty work in my life. I want you to do something that only you can do. It cannot be humanly explained, but I want you to use me, touch me, teach me. I want you to employ me to do your good work. God, help me to dream dreams. I wonder if there's anybody in the house who has a big gospel dream, or could it be the case that you've stopped dreaming? Could it be the case that you no longer have dreams? Church of Jesus Christ has big gospel dreams for the glory of God. So you and I are to dream dreams. And Paul had a big dream. He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to evangelize the entire region. He wanted to win that area that was westward. That was just uncharted territory. And Paul says, I want to take it for Christ. I want to take it for the kingdom. I wonder, is there anybody here who has a God-sized dream? Because the gospel promotes dreams. We, we have to be a people uh, that realize that the best is yet to come. Our best days are in front of us, not behind us. The call of the gospel always reminds us that we have a big dream, but that big dream must be subjected to a big God. And God just might take you halfway around the world in order to get you to your final destination down the street. You realize that? God may take you halfway around the world just to get you to your final destination down the street. Sometimes we have to have some praiseworthy pit stops. Do you realize that for God, sometimes the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line, but a zigzag. Sometimes God gives us divine detours. It's not something that we had on our schedule. It's not something we had on the itinerary. It's not something that we had on the agenda, but God took over. God showed up and God said, listen, I like your idea of going to Spain, but I've got something in Jerusalem that I need you to do. We've got to have big dreams of going to Spain, and we also have to be willing to go to Jerusalem. We have to be willing to do things that the world says that doesn't make any sense. Because, once again, if you were looking at a geographical map, the travel plans make no geographical sense. Oh, but God's will for your life, not only is it spiritual, it's also sensible. It might not make sense to anybody else, but it makes sense to you and to God. This is why God took me to this school. This is why God took me to this place. This is why God put this uh, detour in my path. This is why God told me to have this pit stop. Because God is up to something. Because the gospel, it promotes dreams and divine detours. This is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. I want to go to Spain, he says. But first, God has prompted me to take up this love offering and to take it back to the saints in Jerusalem. And so I will. And as we've already noted, in the book of Acts, it's very clear that when he gets there, he gets arrested. He does make his way to Rome, but as a prisoner. And even as a prisoner, he is proclaiming the gospel. 
There is no circumstance that shuts him down. There is no situation that locks him down. He says, even as I go as a prisoner, I will proclaim the gospel of the Lord. Friend, I'm asking you, how big is your gospel dream? What does God want you to do? If you don't have a dream, let your dream begin today. Ask God, Lord, give me a big dream for you and for your kingdom. I don't want to just, I don't want to just eke out my existence from day to day. I want you to use me in a tremendous way. So God, give me a dream. Oh, I'd rather have a church full of dreamers than a church who just says, no, let's just make it from this Sunday to next Sunday. No, let's dream for the gospel. All the while, subjecting it to him because he just might give you a divine detour. The first principle from the passage of the gospel promotes dreams and divine detours. The second principle is this, that the gospel grows generous believers. The gospel grows generous believers. Look with me again at verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Macedonia represents the northern churches. Churches like Philippi. Achaia represents those southern churches. You know, some of the southern churches like Corinth. That's exactly what it represents. So the Philippians and the Corinthians are two examples of congregations who said, yes, we want to help in ministering to the saints in Jerusalem. Now keep in mind that these churches in Philippi, in Galatia, in Ephesus, in Corinth, those were predominantly Gentile-believing churches. Most people there were not Jewish. They were of Gentile descent. But when they heard that the church at Jerusalem, that's the sending church, that's the mother church, and there the church in Jerusalem was primarily made up of believers who had a Jewish descent. And when the Gentile believers heard that their believing Jewish brothers and sisters were hurting, they were eager to give. They were willing. They were pleased to give an offering. In Acts chapter 11, there's a prophet named Agabus. And Agabus foretold that there would be a crippling severe famine to strike in and around Jerusalem during the reign of Claudius. Maybe the saints in Jerusalem are still crippled economically from that famine. It's been a couple of years. And yet maybe they're still suffering. Because the culture was largely agrarian in nature, a famine is one of the worst things that could happen. And so probably the saints there in Jerusalem, they were suffering because they were out of jobs. They did not have income, didn't have food on the table. Uh, they didn't have government handouts, so they went to the church. And as people went to the church, the church didn't have any resources because the people that gave the resources were then out of a job and unemployed. It is a vicious cycle. And so this news got to the Apostle Paul, and Paul prayed about this, and Paul said, listen, I'm, I'm in an area right now where people have material blessings. They're not touched by the famine in Jerusalem, so their material blessing can be an aid and a help to those in need. And Paul says that they were pleased to give. For the word translated were pleased, it means they were willing. 
Paul is the founding pastor at Philippi, at Corinth, at Ephesus. And as the founding pastor, he did not have to beg. He did not have to threaten. He did not even um, uh, have to try to intimidate them and guilt them into giving. They gave willingly. They gave graciously. I've told you before, and I'll tell you many times still, that I, I don't want generosity from you. I want generosity for you. If you've been blessed, you've been blessed to be a blessing to somebody else. And the best way to loosen the grip of greed out of your life is to give. Isn't it ironic that the one topic that Jesus talked about more in his ministry than any other topic was the topic of money? Because Jesus understood that the last thing that we submitted to him is our wallet. You remember the story that's tucked away in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of that wee little man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was regarded as a crook by his own countrymen. Uh, before he met Jesus, he was just seen as one who was employed by the Roman IRS. Oh, but Zacchaeus got word that Jesus was coming to his neck of the woods. And being a short man, he wanted to be able to see Jesus. So he ran ahead of the crowd, climbed a sycamore fig tree. From that spot, he could get a bird's eye, eye view of Jesus. Jesus came to the foot of the sycamore fig tree, looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I've got to go to your house today. And as Zacchaeus made his way down the tree, Jesus had entered into a conversation, a gospel conversation with Zacchaeus. By the time they get back to the house and Zacchaeus is there with all of his cronies, his life has been touched and changed. He stands up and he says, Jesus, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said with a smile on his face, salvation has come to this house. For this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Zacchaeus was not saved because he gave away large sums of money. No, he gave away large sums of money because he was saved. Because he was touched by Jesus, because he was saved from his sin, he gave and he responded in generosity. Generosity normally is a good thermometer to the spiritual condition of the heart. Not always, but usually. Generosity is a good thermometer that gauges the spiritual condition of the heart. Paul says these Gentile churches, they were willing to give, eager to give. I didn't have to threaten them, didn't have to guilt them into giving. They gave generously. Because the gospel, the gospel grows generous believers. It's at this point that I need to applaud you. I realize that far too many times the preacher stands up and tells the congregation what you're doing wrong. This morning, can I tell you what you do right? Last year will go down in history as one of the strangest years in the American church and the global church. It'll be known as the year of COVID-19. 2020 will always have an asterisk beside it. That's the year of COVID-19. It happened in March. We were still in the first quarter. This church asked the same question that every church asked. What's going to happen to the financial stream? How generous are people going to be able to be throughout this year? And I want to applaud you. Because I can tell you that in 2020, you gave in excess of $3 million to the church budget. Not only did you enable us to meet the budget, but you helped us surpass the budget. I applaud you. Also, beyond that, you helped us to keep track of payments to our indebtedness 
And by the end of the year, we were able to make a large payment so that now our church indebtedness is tumbling below $3.5 million. Now, why is that significant? Because six years ago, when I came as your pastor, our church indebtedness was three times the annual budget. And now our church indebtedness is pretty much equivalent to one year of our church budget. All of that, I applaud you. All of that is based upon God's goodness and your generosity. So I just want to be the first in the line to say thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Because the gospel, when it takes root in our lives, it grows generous believers. And now, let me be the pastor you expect me to be. When I tell you, don't stop. Don't stop giving. Continue to be generous with your resources as you have demonstrated already in the first month and a half of 2021. You continue to give as God has given to you because you're not giving just to meet a budget. You're giving because of God's mandate upon your life because God has been generous to you. You are generous back to God. And I want to encourage you. I want to applaud you. I want to ask you to keep up the great work the good work that God started in you will come to completion and, and it will be fulfilled. You continue to allow the gospel to take deep roots in your life. And one of the effects of that is that the gospel grows generous believers. There's a third principle. The principle is that the, that the gospel, uh, it unites nations. The gospel unites nations. Paul says that these Gentile believers, they were pleased to give, and rightfully so. He writes that they benefit from the spiritual blessing of believing Israel. And so they owe it to believing Israel to give to them some of their own material blessings. Once again, he sees the connectivity between Jew and Gentile. This is not the first time that Paul has written about this. Back in Romans chapter 11, he gives the same principle with a different analogy. In Romans 11, the illustration is an agricultural one of a gardener grafting trees. You might recall that the apostle says that it was believing Israel that laid the solid root system of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were given the gifts of God. They were given the word of God, the Ten Commandments of God, the covenants of God. And, and they believed God. They trusted God. They believed upon the Lord. And they taught their children and their children's children the truth of God. Oh, but somewhere along the way, Israel rejected the Lord. And because of unbelief, God, who's the gardener, pruned the olive tree, cut off non-believing Israel. In its place, he grafted in a branch, not of like kind, another olive tree, but he grafted in a wild olive shoot, Gentiles. It's an uncultured branch. It's something that, that no gardener in that day would ever attempt to do because you only can graft together two things of a like kind. But the gardener in Romans 11 he is so skilled, he is such an expert that he successfully grafted in two branches that were unlike kind, two branches that were uncultured. He grafted in Gentiles into believing Israel. And you know he successfully grafted us Gentiles in because we respond in faith. And then Paul says in Romans 11 that there's coming a day 
when there will be a massive number of Jewish descendants who will turn back to the Lord in faith and if God can successfully graft in a wild olive shoot, he can certainly regraft in an olive branch into an olive tree. That's what Paul said in Romans 11. There's a connectivity between Jew and Gentile. Uh, it was Joseph Stoll who said that we live life as debtors. We are indebted to those who have gone before us. And friends, we sit here indebted to those who have gone before us. We're indebted, and our indebtedness goes all the way back to believing Israel. For if it were not for believing Israel, then we would not know the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are here, we're indebted, the Jew and the Gentile always being connected as an olive tree grafted together. But here in Romans 15, he says, when the Jews are in need, the Gentiles can supply the need. Because don't forget, when you were in need of salvation, it's the Jewish root system of the patriarchs that gave us the Messiah. And so because of the spiritual blessing of Israel, then you as Gentiles, you need to bless Israel with material blessings. There's always this connectivity between Jew and Gentile. We speak of this in the church often. We speak of Jews and Gentiles. It kind of rolls off the tongue if you've been around church very long. But the reality is, uh, this, was, this was strange in the first century. Uh, in Christ, Paul was bringing together different races, different nationalities, different ethnicities. Ethnicities don't always get along in our day. They especially did not get along in Paul's day. I mean, your race, your nationality, your ethnicity, it was a, 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 a boundary of demarcation. You really only hung out with people that looked like you, walked like you, talked like you, and acted like you. You very rarely ever crossed the aisle. You very rarely ever crossed the boundary. You very rarely uh, uh, spoke to someone who was of a different race from a different place with a different looking face. I mean, you very rarely would ever go across and minister to someone, say hello to someone, because your ethnicity was your boundary. And Paul consistently prompted Jews and Gentiles to be united in Christ. Another way for me to say that the gospel unites the nations is for me to say that the gospel removes racism. Think about Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, here's the strategy. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses, my martyrs. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now we read that, and that's pretty much the purpose statement of the fifth book of the New Testament, Acts. For we see, as we read the 28 chapters, that the gospel goes to Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to Samaria of all places. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. And then the gospel even went to the nations, the barbarians, the Gentiles. In fact, the end of the earth in those days was regarded to be the Roman Empire. And the last picture you see is the Apostle Paul under house arrest. And he's proclaiming the gospel in the capital city of Rome. And Dr. Luke says in the very last line that the gospel was going forth boldly and unhindered. The point was not Paul. The point was the gospel. The point was that the gospel was going forth. So Acts 1-8 is not just a geographical statement. 
It goes from the geographical area of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's also a racial statement that the gospel removes barriers. And one of the primary barriers of all humanity is the barrier of race. And so the gospel has a way of removing racism and uniting the nations under the banner of Christ. And we see that. We see that in the book of Acts. We've seen that over the last 2,000 years. As the gospel goes forth and unites brothers and sisters, we are the family of God. And friend, you have more in common with a sibling in Christ than you have in common with a biological sibling who does not yet know the Lord. You do realize that, right? You have more in common with somebody halfway around the world who is a Christian, a born-again believer. You have more in common with them than you do with your own biological siblings who do not yet know the Lord. And Paul reminded us that we are united in the gospel, that the gospel unites the nations and it removes racism. Now realizing in our American culture, we hear a lot about racism in these days, don't we? In fact, it's very hard to turn on the news of really any station and not hear something about racism in America. And this morning, I want to be as clear as I possibly can. Friends, regardless of who you are, you do not need to apologize for the pigmentation of your skin. But you do need to apologize for any sin that surfaces from a calloused heart. Okay, let me say that again. You do not need to apologize for the pigmentation of your skin. You don't need to apologize for being white. You don't need to apologize for being black. You don't need to apologize for being brown. You don't need to apologize for being yellow. You don't need to apologize for the pigmentation of your skin. But you do need to apologize for any sin that surfaces from a calloused, sinful heart. And if that sin is racism, then you need to apologize for it. But if it's some other sin, then you need to apologize for that other sin. Because our, 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 what, what unites us is not the color of our skin. What unites us is the condition of our heart. And whether or not Christ is residing in our heart, that's what unites us more than anything else. My father in the ministry is Robert Smith Jr. I've had the privilege of hearing him preach numerous times. I've had the privilege of going with him various places. And I love when Dr. Smith introduces me as his son. Now, Dr. Smith is a very chocolate man. I am not a chocolate man. And so when we go into a place where there's diversity of pigmentation of skin in the crowd, and when Dr. Smith stands up and says, there is my son, Dr. Davin Watkins, people look at him and then look at me, and then look at him and then look at me. How is this possible? And then he'll say, oh, you're confused because of the color of our skin. Our unity goes far deeper than, than what's uh, uh, on the pigmentation of our skin. I've heard Dr. Smith say numerous times that we've had two great awakenings in this country and racism has survived both. Racism is not a skin problem. It is a sin problem. Dr. Smith goes on to say, all people are racist. 
Black people are racist. White people are racist. Hispanic people are racist. Chinese people are racist. All people are racist because it's a sin problem. And the remedy for our sin is the Savior. Now, you and I live in a culture that says that in America, we want to remove racism. Um, Sometimes culturally, I doubt that because I may be the only one in the house, but sometimes I think that uh, racism is stirred and stoked in the American culture. But if it's true, then in the American culture, America wants to remove racism, I know how it can be done. The only way that racism can be removed is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only through the gospel that we see God for who he is. It is only through the gospel we see our sinful condition as we are. It is only through the gospel that we realize that the blood of Jesus Christ covers a multitude of sins. It is only through the gospel that we see brothers and sisters in Christ independent of gender or race or socioeconomic background. For what unites us is the Lord Jesus Christ and the unity in Christ is greater than any demographic that could ever be sliced and diced upon the American. People. So if America wants to get, a, get rid of racism, the answer is right there before us. The answer is present the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel unites nations. It removes racism. It's the only remedy for a sin-sick soul. We have the answer. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there is coming a day when John promises us that there will be a multitude so great that no one can count. And there will be representatives of every nation, every kindred, every tribe, and every tongue. And we as one person will declare, as we stand in robes of white, as we wave green palm branches in the air, we will declare salvation belongs to our God, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Salvation belongs to our God and to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Salvation belongs to our God and to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And when you and I look around, we will not see people of different color. We will see siblings of our Savior. We will see siblings in the Lord Jesus Christ and together we will declare he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords he's the one who unites us independent of any division that can come in humanity he is the one that gives us the good sweet gospel and the gospel unites the nations and it's the only remedy that's out there I realize that what I'm saying is not completely politically correct, but that won't be the first time. And it probably won't be the last time either. But I am telling you the biblical truth, and you know it to be true. That the only thing that unites people is the gospel. So that, literally, people who are waking up in Africa, in Honduras... In China, if they declare Jesus is Lord, I am bound to them, and you are too. And we have more in common with them than any family member who does not know Christ. 
Paul made it his point to remind the church over and over and over again, this is a multi-racial family of God. This church thing that Christ established, this has multiple ethnicities. This church is united in the gospel of Christ. I told you there are four uh, principles, and the fourth one is simply this, that the gospel shares the prayers of others. Look with me quickly at verses 30 and following. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul is not the founding pastor at the church at Rome. Now he knows a lot of people in the Roman church. That's evidenced by what we'll see next week in Romans chapter 16. He lists out specific names of saints. But he doesn't list the whole membership role because he doesn't know everybody there. And Paul is saying to the church at Rome, whether I know you or whether I don't know you, I have one request of you. Pray for me, please. Pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Uh, Pray that I will be strengthened, Paul says. I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future in his hands. I think the apostle had a holy hunch that things might not go down right in Jerusalem. He says, pray for the unbelievers in Judea. I mean, I got a, I got a load of loot that I got to give to the church. And I don't know if everything's going to go down well in Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen, but I just want you to pray that, that I will be strong in the face of conflict. Just pray that I will be strong in the moment of persecution. Pray that I will be strong When culture calls me to compromise, just pray for my strength. It was John R.W. Stott who said the struggle with prayer is this. Number one, discerning God's will. And then number two, desiring it above everything else. Friend, isn't that the struggle of prayer? The struggle of prayer is discerning, God, what is your will? What do you want me to do? What is the 1,500-mile detour that you have for me? I want to go to Spain. I want to do something great for you. But, Lord, what is it you want me to do? And the Lord said to Paul, I need you to go to Jerusalem. I need you to take this money to Jerusalem, this love offering. Give it to the saints there. They're struggling because of the famine. And then I'll just give you one step at a time. And you just do your best to fulfill the plan one step at a time. And Paul says, okay, if that's what you want me to do, help me to want that above everything else. What's true in the first century is also true today. The great struggle of your prayer life is discerning God's will for you. And then once God's will is revealed, desiring it above everything else. Because sometimes God will be more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. He'll be more concerned about his call versus your comfort. 
He'll be more concerned about his salvation versus your security. He'll be more concerned about his purpose more than your plans. And when you pray and discern the will of God, and if God tells you to do something that's a divine detour, that's a a praiseworthy pit stop, if, if the Lord gives you something that you didn't see on your agenda and itinerary, will you do it? What Paul is asking the church is, pray for me. Pray that I'll be strengthened. That whatever happens to me in Jerusalem, okay, God's in charge. And I will follow one step at a time. You know, friends, usually we end the sermon with what I like to call a Christological crescendo. You know what that's like. I get happy, you get loud. I usually like to end the sermon on a high note. Take my seat while you're still going crazy. I mean, that's usually what I like to, I like, I like a Christological crescendo. But today we will not end on a Christological crescendo. Today I want us to end on a bended knee. The gospel shares in the prayers of others. So this morning I'm calling you to get on bended knee. I want you to pray for yourself. Maybe uh, you need to pray and ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Today's a great day to do that. Maybe you need to pray saying, God, help me dream again. Because it's been a long time since I've had a gospel dream. Maybe um, you need to be more generous. Maybe God needs to remove the sin of racism or the sin of anything else that rears its ugly head from a calloused heart. I want you today to pray for you. I ask you today to pray for me. Pray that I will be strengthened to do the task that God has called me to do, whatever that task may be. I'll pray for your strength, you pray for my strength. It's one thing for us to be resolved in the church house. It's another thing to be resolved in the moment of conflict, in the moment of chaos, in the moment of persecution, in the moments of problems. But when those moments come for all of us, let us be strengthened. And Paul says, I will succeed on the strength of your prayers. So this morning, we pray for each other. Maybe you need to pray for a sibling, a brother or sister in Christ, and you know they're struggling. You know they're hurting. Maybe it's somebody across the pew. Maybe it's somebody across the street. Maybe it's a sibling that you don't really know but you just know of. Or maybe this morning you just need to pray for your siblings in Christ that are halfway around the world. You haven't met them yet, and you probably won't meet them this side of heaven. But today you just feel impressed to pray for others. Friends, I I just want you to know that the gospel has profound effect on daily decisions of your life. It is the gospel that promotes dreams and divine detours. It is the gospel that grows generous believers. It is the gospel that unites nations by removing racism. It is the gospel that shares in the prayers of others. So this morning, don't be bashful. Don't be timid. Don't be embarrassed. This morning, I invite you to come and pray. Yes, you can pray in your seat. But yes, you can also come 
and prayer at the altar. And pray for others in the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, with no Christological crescendo, I simply ask you, let's bow our heads on our knees and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Help us to respond in obedience to you. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our siblings. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we, we pray for our nation. Uh, we pray for the God-sized task that you've given us. We, we pray that your agenda will be our agenda. Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray. We ask for strength upon strength upon strength. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.